0: Welcome to Cape Up. I'm your host, Jonathan Capehart, coming to you from the West Wing of the White House and the office of Valerie Jarrett, the longest-ever-serving senior advisor to the president. Now, in a town famous for inflating egos and corrupting souls, Jarrett has survived the slings and arrows of Washington by never forgetting for whom she worked. Make no mistake, she's very proud of her accomplishments, but she's clear on who gets the credit.
1: And if he didn't care about the issues that I have put the shoulder to the metal behind, they wouldn't have happened and they wouldn't have been my priority.
0: And the most revealing moment came when she talked about how five-year-old Valerie gazing through the gates of Buckingham Palace gave way to the woman who would return decades later to meet the queen. Valerie Jarrett, thanks for being on Cape Up. Thanks for being here.
1: Welcome to the White House, Jonathan. I know. Can you believe
0: it's been eight years?
1: It has been eight years. As you know, I started January 20th, 2009.
0: I mean, I'm just trying to wrap my head around just in terms of, you know, as a reporter covering the White House for eight years and a new person's coming in. But it's completely different when it's someone like you who has been here since day one, and we'll be going out on the last day. Uh, how are you feeling right now?
1: It's a little surreal. I mean, eight years is, even at my age, eight years is still a big chunk of my life. I think where it came home to me is when I was listening to the president talk to some college students, and he said, you guys were 10 years old when I was elected, and you're in college today. And I thought, oh my goodness, you are right. That's a big chunk. I had no gray hair at all when he was elected. And now I'm like, looking in the mirror. So his gray hair is funny. Mine is not so funny. So it's been a long time. And I it's been... A privilege each and every single day, even on our worst days. I can't imagine that um, I would trade what I've been able to do uh, with anyone in the world. I've just had an incredible opportunity here.
0: Well, you mentioned it, the worst days, but what was the worst of the worst days?
1: I would say the worst weekend, which began on a Friday through Sunday, was uh, when those 20 amazing kids and six adults were murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School. I remember Jonathan being in the Oval Office when the president heard that there were 20 children and six adults, and I couldn't process the number 20. And then uh, right after the number was their ages. And to think about six and seven year olds, I just couldn't I couldn't even make sense. I was in shock, and of course, I think everyone's first reaction is, you think about your own loved ones and, and the phone calls that the parents were receiving um, over the media and directly from the school to come to the uh, to come uh, to the facility they had available, and then two days later, just two days later, I accompanied the president to Newtown and I walked around with him, family by family. And some of those families have been come become very close friends of mine to this day. But to see people on the worst day of their life mourning a child is just excruciating.
0: That was December fourteenth. 2012 I believe the president went into the briefing room gave a statement and then at that point he he cried I think it was yeah. one of the first times we had seen this president or a president in general shed tears and for a lot of people rightly so for the very reasons you just described the ages of the of the victims where they were Was that the first time you'd ever seen the president cry?
1: No, I've seen him cry before. But usually it's involving his love for his own children, um, his appreciation for young people who, for example, have worked on his campaign. He cried the day after the 2012 election when he went to the campaign offices and he told the young folks how inspired he was by them and how much better than he they were uh, when he was a community organizer Um, i've heard him seen him tear up when he talks about his own daughters and just what a gift they are and how much he loves them so i've seen that emotion and then you saw it again when uh in january of this year when he announced additional steps that we were taking to try to keep guns out of the hands of people who are danger to themselves or to others and he was introduced by mark Barton one of the fathers who lost his son, Daniel. And while the president was listening to Mark talk, I could just see his t- the tears welling up in him, and it took him right back to that day when we were in Newtown. And I think of those families every single day, and not just the loss, but what so many of them have done with that despair, channeling it into a positive, positive movement to try to ensure nobody else goes through what they've had to go through.
0: Do you think you could do what the president had to do in newtown talking to those families and it wasn't the first time he had to do it
1: well sadly he has far too many times been the mourner in chief i remember when he went to tucson right after former Congresswoman Gabby Gifford was shot. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about the young girl that was killed that day. And that moved him to tears. And I've been with him to Orlando. I've been with him all over our country. I've accompanied the First Lady to the funeral um, of Hydea Pendleton in, in Chicago, Chicago, just a mile from where we both live. And she just been here a few weeks earlier, you know, marching in the inaugural parade. And so... Each one of uh, the lives that have been lost, either through mass casualty or, you know, day by day on the streets of my hometown, Charleston.
0: I another and I was going to ask you about, uh, about Charleston. Uh,
1: which was very different than Newtown because uh, I think it was a moment where... People in our country who didn't understand or have any exposure to the black church learned something about the spirit of openness, the door welcoming a stranger, and it, it, the service was inspirational and uplifting, and the families and their willingness to be forgiving was just such a teaching moment. Uh, but Newtown had none of that. New, Newtown was simply tragic.
0: Where does the president find the strength? And I was asking you, do you think you could do what he did to comfort people at their like deepest moments of despair is uncomfortable for anybody, yeah. whether it's a close friend or a stranger. But when you're president of the United States and then you're thrust into the role of mourner in chief, not once, not twice, but far too many times, Watching him do that, where does he where does he find the strength to keep coming back and making everyone truly feel like he's listening to him, to them he's there, he's present, and that his feelings are indeed genuine.
1: Well, it's hard, and so it takes strength to feel empathetic and want to just stand there and cry your heart out, but know that you have to be strong so someone can cry on your shoulders. Uh, it's very hard. The president is very good at it. And it's a part of the job that uh, I think the American people have every right to expect their president to do and to do well.
0: And June 17th, 2015, was when those nine parishioners at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston were murdered by Dylan Roof. And the president went down, as you just described. He uh, delivered the eulogy. But then he did something that truly shocked the nation um, shocked black people because we couldn't believe he, he did this. And then I think the rest of the nation because it was like, what, the president of the United States is singing? I was sitting in my office watching live on television and my coworkers probably thought I was nuts because I let out this howl of wow, hearing him sing amazing grace, you were there did you know he was going to do it? What yes, was your reaction? he actually
1: had given the first lady and me a heads up uh, on the helicopter ride to the airport that day. And he said, I'll see how I feel, but I may sing. And the first lady's like, look, if you think singing helps, then by all means sing. And I had discouraged him from singing after Al Green had performed the in the New Op- York. I said, Apollo. don't do it, don't do it. So I learned my lesson. I never tell him not to sing. He's got a beautiful voice. And I remember right before he started to sing, he paused. And I remember thinking, well, what's he thinking about at that moment? And I think he just was in the moment. And uh, it pulled us all together and unified us in a way that the words to that song are uniquely able to do. And the fact that he was willing to do something that seems unconventional for a president added an exclamation mark to the moment that I think made it so extraordinarily special.
0: What are you going to miss about this job? Your job, um, if anybody doesn't know, it's a very lengthy title, Senior Advisor and Assistant to the President for Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs to President Barack Obama. What are you going to miss?
1: I am going to miss uh, the people both the people who I have the privilege of working with in the White House, but I'm also gonna really miss the American people and the unique opportunity that we have here to convene, uh, to convene people here at the White House, to travel around the country, and to touch such a broad swath of issues that are important to them. And one of the president's uh, central tenets and direction to me here is is that my offices are a gateway into the White House and that we should ensure that the decisions we make are informed by the American people. And it has been such a privilege to have the engagement that uh, helps drive our policy decisions because Jonathan, the president, uh, and I say this often, and I truly mean it from the bottom of my heart, he gets up every single morning mindful of who he is here to serve. And you cannot do that in isolation. You have to do that through interaction, by listening, by debating, by pushing ideas, by bringing in uh, divergent perspectives, divergent from our own, divergent with each other. And I'll miss the place. Every single day when I come through the gates of that White House, I pinch myself. And I think most specifically about a man who I met in Texas who, uh, gave the president a military patch, which I considered to be like the ultimate unselfish behavior. And this was before people were like offering him their firstborn. this was like a (laughs) a novel experience. Uh, But the reason why, and his name is Earl Smith, the reason why he's so special is because he symbolizes to me what is great about America, where you're willing to sacrifice and give something of yourself for the greater good. And so I, for the last eight years, I've thought about him every time I've come through the gate and I've said, you're here because of Earl and make him proud.
0: You know, as a result of your job, there, then you've had your critics, you've had horrible stories written about you, um, people questioning your, your skills, questioning your access, very Washington criticisms. People who wonder, one story asks, well, what exactly is her job? to me the question just was tinged with not even veiled sexism um how did you how did you deal or how do you deal with the brick bats like an amazing job that you just talked about but with it comes some some really ugly stuff
1: well i think it's what the president said don't lose focus don't allow all of the kind of washington-centric detractors take you off course. And I think if you look over the eight years that I've been here, there are a lot of initiatives, important initiatives that would have been great for our country that stalled in Congress. But because we have taken those campaigns to the cities and states, we've made amazing progress. And whether it's keeping guns out of the wrong hands or criminal justice reform or paid leave and paid sick days, raising the minimum wage. encouraging people to be mindful of our environment there's a whole range of domestic policy initiatives that the republicans in congress were unwilling to support but governors and mayors and state legislators around the country were and there are many that the private sector embraced we have uh, just yesterday we were talking about the 100 over 100 companies that have signed equal pay pledges well that's not something that was legislated. It was companies appreciating that it's in their best interest to close the pay gap. The first bill the President signed was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair mm-hmm. Pay Act, and it made progress, but it wasn't enough. And so my point is, is that I think as people have begun to appreciate the work that can happen outside of Washington, my responsibilities and performance became clearer. And the other point is, of course, I am still here. I'm the longest-serving senior advisor to the President, and I think what what gives me strength and courage in the midst of criticism, fairly or unfairly, is the very same people that I talked about. You know, we have this Champions of Change initiative where we have recognized people who are ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And we invited them to come back to the White House. We had over 400 people here. And when I looked into that audience and saw those familiar faces, people who were in their community, changing the quality of life for so many unselfishly. That's the validation I need that what we did was important work.
0: You know, probably the best description of your role, and since this is Washington, your power in in this White House came in a profile of you written by Joe Becker of the New York Times in 2012. Where she wrote, Some of his his meaning the president's boldest moves on women's issues, gay rights, and immigration have been in areas she cares about most. If Carl Rove was known as George W. Bush's political brain, Ms. Jarrett is Mr. Obama's spine.
1: Oh, I when- totally disagree with that. I mean there isn't there isn't an initiative that I've worked on since I've been here that he didn't bless. I mean this is this is the magic i think of this white house is that tone and policy start at the top and we are here in service of him and if he didn't care about the issues that i have put the shoulder to the metal behind they wouldn't have happened and they wouldn't have been my priority so my agenda is totally linked up with his
0: and 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 i get that but when you you have your goals and your ideal ideals in your in your core but then you get into this place meaning the white house And Washington and then you have to deal with the co-equal branch of government and you get knocked around and one of the things that personally speaking I've seen as someone from the outside looking in is that when the president's been knocked around and buffeted you've been someone among many people who ensures that the president stays true to himself. Do I not have that right?
1: I don't think he needs encouragement to stay true. He is grounded, he's focused, he's strong. He reminds us all on a regular basis of why he's here. Does he know that in me he has someone who shares his core values? Absolutely. Are we able to, you know, buck each other up on bad days? Sure. But that's that is the spirit of the people that he has recruited here in the White House or people who share those core values. He has never once, Jonathan, wavered away from his sense of true north. Not one time. And that's in part why it has been such a privilege to work here. What you have to do is you have to absorb a lot of incoming pain. Some of it, some of the criticism might be warranted and we always try to listen Just because somebody's yelling at you doesn't mean they're not saying something that's important. But some of it's totally unjustified. And some of it, as we heard uh, in numerous press accounts, was simply the Republican position that they wanted to ensure that the president didn't accomplish great things. And so in the face of that kind of short-term political obstructionism, it's no surprise that I would take some incoming. And the other thing I think, Jonathan, is look, This is a town where everybody wants to be the senior advisor to the president, right? And so everybody challenges, well, why would you have that position? But all that's really important is, am I doing the job that the president set out for me to do, and do I have his trust and confidence? That's the metric by which I measure my happiness meter.
0: So I wrote a piece, um, maybe by now, a couple of years ago, where the headline was, four straight black men who led on LGBT equality. And they were uh, Tony West, who was the deputy attorney general under Eric Holder, who was the attorney general, who was uh, one of the four. Um, Jay Johnson, who at the time was, uh, who had been counsel to the Department of Defense and helped bring about the end of, of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And of course, the president being the fourth person, but to my mind, there's a woman who uh, I think figures prominently in that, and that's you. And that's why I read that quote from Joe Becker, being the president's spine. And also when I use the analogy of you know, being the person who, if he gets off track or loses focus, brings him back. Do you...
1: I doubt your underlying premise there that he gets off track and loses his focus. He just doesn't. He doesn't. Now, my job is to take his objectives and his policies and go out and make sure they get implemented. So I'm not saying I don't have to be tough because there are many times when I'm out there meeting with groups who have different opinions and I am um, the on the front line of some of the frustration and people feel because we're not moving fast enough, for example. Um, but he doesn't need bucking up. His spine is perfectly strong. And I think it's a... Um, a disservice to him to think that he needs somebody to keep him focused. What's more likely to happen is that I'll come into the Oval Office and I'll be, particularly early on, I think I've gotten better at this, but I'll be so frustrated about something that's happening out there. And he'll say, were you watching cable news again? <laughs> turn that off, turn it off. That echo chamber is not the important one. What's important is what's what's happening around the kitchen table and on factory floors and at the water cooler you know are we fighting for people who whose voices are quiet are we representing them and he has instilled those core values in this entire team here at the White House and throughout his cabinet to say time here Jonathan is so precious it's so short none of us can afford to lose our focus." And he is the person who is the conductor for that basic principle.
0: So you mentioned something with the constituencies that, you know, are yelling and angry. And I remember it was like day 101. And um, a, a gay activist wrote a column saying, where is our fierce advocate of now? The president is letting down gay people. And just there was this. Anger within the LGBT community that the president had not moved.
1: How are they feeling a, now? In
0: a hundred days. How are on, they feeling now? Well, it went from questioning his his fealty and loyalty and care to the LGBT community to having him on the cover of Newsweek magazine with a halo over his head, calling him the first gay right, president. So
1: I asked the question somewhat rhetorically, but because and this is it's a it's a important point I think for people to think about. Even when they enter public service and that is the people who were critical of us were doing their job they're advocates their job is to push us and push us hard to do everything we can as quickly as possible the president's job is to take the long view and to think about how can we affect positive change in a way that is sustainable the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is a very good case study in that, because if the president had come in on day one and with the stroke of a pen had just said, I'm going to change policy and I'm going to take you know, whatever incoming I get from Congress, not only would Congress have been forced to act in a way that would have been inconsistent with where they ended up when they did repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, because they would have responded to him, but The success of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is not what's on paper, it's how the LGBT community is being treated within the military. And because the president said, look, let's have a process. Let's survey those who are in service. Let's talk to the leadership. Let's have a process in place where we figure out how is this going to be received within uh, the Defense Department. Because that took longer than people may have wanted, but the end result is you don't hear problems about gay people serving in the military. They are embraced among their ranks. And on the first anniversary of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I remember being invited over to the Defense Department where many of uh, the servicemen and women who had to sneak into the White House out of uniform to meet with me about the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell were sitting in the audience proudly in their uniform. and that That's more than just what happens on a piece of paper or the passage of a law. And the president knew that. And he was willing to take the short-term incoming pain. And it was painful because these are many of our supporters for the sake of the long-term goal. When you think about marriage equality and the Supreme Court decision that came down the same day we were in Charleston. And if you would remember,
0: that's right. that
1: was my most extraordinary day here because we begin with hearing about the Supreme Court. We then go to Charleston and we come back and I, together with many of my colleagues, were on the North Portico watching the sun go down as our White House was painted in the rainbow colors. Uh, But I think the reason why I mention that is that when the president took office, marriage equality was legal in two states. By the time the Supreme Court ruled, it was 37 states and territories in the District of Columbia. I think, and this gets back to the work that my office does, uh, and we're not in any way taking credit for that, but having state by state campaigns built momentum that I think gave the Supreme Court the room and the permission structure to reach the right legal conclusion. And it would have been harder for them to do that on day one. So I think a big piece of what we try to do here is to build the momentum that forces change, and that comes outside of Washington. Well,
0: speaking of Washington, I mean, you lived in Chicago. Um, you come in, you're coming in with the incoming administration. What was the biggest surprise about Washington once you lived here and given where you work, uh, what was the biggest surprise?
1: Well, you're right. I came from Chicago and I started my career in public service working for the city of Chicago when Mayor Harold Washington was there. And then I stayed through Mayor Sawyer and then was promoted by Mayor Daley to be deputy chief of staff. And so I think Chicago has a reputation for being pretty rough and tumble. And uh, being in the mayor's office, and then running the Department of Planning, and being the chair of the Chicago Transit Board, I had a lot of experience in politics. What surprised me here was the willingness of people, Republicans, to put their short-term political interests ahead of what was good for the country. I mean, refresh our memories, Jonathan. When the president took office, we were losing up to up to eight hundred thousand jobs a month. The unemployment rate went up to as high as 10%. We had a dependence on foreign oil. We had um, an energy crisis. We had our automobile industry on the brink of collapse. Two wars. Uh, Lots of challenges. And so instead of saying, how can we work with President Obama, who's come in with this wave of popularity and momentum? How can we be partners to find a common agenda, to, to tackle those challenges and more, what did they do? We will just say no to everything. That surprised me. Stunningly surprised me. It, imagine if you added up all the time that was spent doing something that they knew would never receive the president's approval. What if they'd spent that jo- time focusing on early childhood education or reforming our criminal justice system to keep our streets safer or making college more affordable? Or you you name like it. Any number, any one number of a of uh, important issues here in our country would have been a better use of their time. So their willingness to just waste precious time I find stunning as well.
0: So in an earlier answer, you were you were talking, We talked about lots of constituencies. Um, as a result of this election, what would you say to Americans who are truly frightened by the people who will be working in this building after you? Um, just given the campaign that was run
1: well look uh the campaign's over and uh elections have consequences and it is our job now uh, as the president has made clear to his team to do everything we can to provide for a smooth transition Uh, president bush did that in a really a professional and amazing way when we were coming in i remember thinking well, they probably won't want to talk to us because we ran a really tough campaign and obviously campaigned a lot against a lot of his policies. And they welcomed us with open arms and were extremely constructive and helpful. And the president said, that's the strength of our democracy. And so that's our job now. And it's not to be a Monday morning quarterback on individual selections that the president-elect might make or, or anticipate what he might do in the future. Uh, I think we've got to give him room to see what he does.
0: So come January 20th, 2017, you're back to being a private citizen. You're going to go home, you curl up on the couch. What are you going to binge watch? Because I know you, you like TV.
1: I am going to not be able to binge watch because I'm going to be on a beach somewhere oh. <laughs> that has no access to television or the Internet or anything else. I'm going to be a long, long way away by the end of that day. But there are some shows that I probably will watch into the next year. So we'll, well see. Have you seen I hate to, geez, what,
0: Have you seen The Crown?
1: No. I haven't. Is it good?
0: Netflix. Good. 10 episodes. Is it really it's about good? Queen It's about Queen Elizabeth.
1: Yeah, you know what somebody actually was telling me about that. All right. I'll put that on the list. And what else? Queen. What else? I did have the privilege of meeting the Queen. Oh my gosh. That so, was so cool.
0: So then you're going to you're going to love The Crown. But what so what was it what was why was it so cool? I mean, I can only imagine.
1: I'll describe to you exactly why it was cool for me. When I was five, I lived in London for um, a year. And then I lived there again my uh, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. But when I was five, I have the most vivid memory of standing outside the gates of Buckingham Palace. They have those wrought iron fences. And for hours, would watch the changing of the guards. And my parents would say, OK, that's enough, Valerie. <laughs> and I go, no, no more. And I thought at the time and I can see myself Jonathan standing there Wow! I wish I could go inside those gates what would that be like and so when uh, I accompanied the president to London and we drove in the motorcade through the gates oh it was about as cool as it could be and then the queen graciously hosted a state visit and everybody had on Beautiful long dresses and gloves that I'd never worn before that come up your sleeve. And there was a footman that pulled out the chair and she greeted us all and was so unbelievably queen like. (laughs) It's very cool. I just, I'll never forget that moment. It was just a thrill for me. There's just something about, you know, the queen that's very special. And that place in particular, because I had been on the outside, it's, same way I felt the first time I came into the White House.
0: Were you were you in the beast in the car with the president no. when you rolled into? No, I
1: wasn't with him. I was in the motorcade.
0: So, because I'm just wondering what you were like as you're rolling through the gate, where you're like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, like.
1: I took all these <laughs> photographs of us coming like over <laughs> a, a little um, circle roundabout that's right in front, and. As the gate opened, I took, I don't know, 50 photos, all of which I sent to my mom to say, look, look where I am. You can't believe it, can you? So that's very cool. That's that's a cool moment.
0: How proud of you is your mom?
1: Uh, very, very proud. I come from a family very committed to public service. Uh, and so for her to see her daughter serving here in the White House, uh, I'm just so Delighted that both of my parents were alive to see the day. And my dad grew up in Washington. First time he'd been to the White House was when after President Obama was elected. And I'm so grateful he lived to see that day.
0: I, I had the, the honor of, of meeting your mom. And just seeing you around her was a, a great thing to see because, you know, you're Valerie Jarrett, your senior counselor to the president. And to see you just melt into being your Barbie's daughter, daughter. <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly amazing to see um your favorite holiday tradition at christmas
1: time uh christmas dinner at my parents home we have always been the magnet in our family for holiday dinners and uh e- long after i grew up i always spend christmas eve night uh, sleep over at my parents' home, and now my daughter and her husband do the same thing, and we wake up in the morning, and we don't have nearly the gifts that we had when we were little, and the kids <laughs> like to open them up, but we have Christmas breakfast and then cook all day and welcome our family that evening. Cook
0: all day. I, uh, You know, I like to ask around for, you know, interesting tidbits on people before I interview them. Isn't there something in particular you like to make around Christmas time? I like that a lot. Why? What are you thinking about? (laughs) You must have heard something. What? A drink?
1: Oh, my eggnog? I did make a very special eggnog. Uh
0: What makes it special?
1: The ice cream that I put in it. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you
0: trying to kid? And what else? It
1: is ice cream and a little something else special. I'm not allowed to advertise for particular brands okay. on here. But I'm, I'm thinking, let's just say it's not for children. It's not for children. It's, it's not an adult beverage. It's an adult, it is an adult, adult beverage, beverage, yes. Um, that I make Christmas morning and I taste it in the morning and that <laughs> makes the day go better. <laughs> uh,
0: uh, how, like, is the bottle gone?
1: Well, it depends on how many people we're having to dinner, and I don't measure; I just taste. I mean,
0: but why? Why? Well, I just why keep
1: measure? pouring until it tastes right. And it, <laughs> <laughs> that probably gets stronger and stronger as the batches go on. Yeah. <laughs> and is it as, as
0: intense as Miss Peggy's eggnog, here at the White House? Because Miss Peggy's, I I find Miss Peggy at the the press holiday party.
1: It's awfully tasty. I don't want to, I probably don't compete with Miss Peggy. (laughs) But for my family, they enjoy it.
0: Valerie Jarrett, Senior Advisor and Assistant to the President for Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs to President Barack Obama. Thank you very much for being here.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for being a good representative of the press. It's important to have you all out there and I appreciate you. you.
0: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.